Hey, it's Nancy. Before we begin today, I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Crime Beat early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It's something that many of us could be asked to do. A chance to play a key role in our justice system and pass judgment on those accused of serious crimes. Any one of us can be considered for jury duty. And every year, thousands are called on to fulfill this obligation. It's a role that can come with significant stress, especially when the case includes disturbing evidence. This wasn't ordinary for us. We don't sit through trials every day. Yeah, you see crime on TV. That's nothing. That's nothing like sitting in a real courtroom with a real crime in front of you. When the first witness was called, um, that was uh, Jennifer. Uh, that was it for me. I mean, I knew we were. It was going to be intense when uh, when she described uh, what she went through that first day. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. Today, a Crime Beat exclusive. You'll hear from two of the 12 jurors who decided the fate of Douglas Garland. This is Hunted by Evil Inside the Jury. You'll remember from the previous two episodes that in the summer of 2014, Jennifer O'Brien went to pick up her five-year-old son from her parents' home following a sleepover. But they weren't there. Instead, she found a crime scene. The bodies of Nathan O'Brien and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness, were never found. Three years later, in 2017, Douglas Garland stood trial for three counts of first-degree murder. Today, you'll hear from two members of the jury who heard the case. This is the first time any of the jurors have spoken publicly, and I'm grateful they're allowing me to share their experience with you. I need to tell you, in Canadian law, jurors are not allowed to disclose what was said during their deliberations, so that was off-limits for our interview. In fact, they can't tell anyone not even a counselor or a therapist, what was said in the jury room during deliberations. It's a criminal offense to reveal those conversations. That's because the courts want to protect a juror's privacy in the jury room. So decisions aren't influenced by potential negative public backlash in the future if the verdicts are controversial. Anyone convicted of disclosing jury deliberations could face a fine of up to $5,000 or jail for up to two years less a day or both. 
For safety reasons, I'm not using their real names, so I'll refer to them as Jane and Max. In December of 2016, they received a summons in the mail. We had been away on a holiday, and so when we got our bunch of mail, it was in there. And I was right away concerned because it was time-sensitive. I got the subpoena in the mail and, um, and was told to show up uh, at the courthouse. And uh, no idea um, what the case was or what the reason was, but, you know, you, you get it, you, you've got to show up. It's quite a process because, you know, you go through all the security and then there's like over a thousand people sitting in this big courtroom and they just like eliminate, like they go through numbers and eliminate, eliminate. And then after so many, you know, processes of elimination, um, then I, I went into the courtroom where I was asked a few questions and I wasn't very familiar. I vaguely knew of a case with, um, with the three people, but vaguely. So I show up there and there's, uh, there's people everywhere. And um, so we're all in, in room, we're pushed into different rooms and um, there's some people in, in the big courtroom and some people in a smaller area. And, and uh, then people start talking and people more bold than myself start asking uh, the security questions and what's this all about, what's going on. And then um, I, I overheard one of the security guys telling, uh, telling the, uh, another person that, uh, that there was 470 some of us there and that it was for uh, a murder trial. And uh, it was just a really unreal, um, surreal situation where you had all these people there and then they started calling out numbers. Um, and if they called out your number, uh, then you, you move into a different room and you move up to the front of the court. court and then, and then they, they called a group of 10 and my number was called uh, second out of the whole thing. And uh, so I, I, when I, we would go into the little room and then never really knowing what you were doing. I felt like, you know, it was cattle being moved from pen to pen, uh, never knowing exactly what's happening. And then uh, we went from that room one at a time into, uh, into meet the, uh, the judge and the, uh, and the lawyers. And uh, they were allowed to ask us a few, three questions, I think it was, whether we were aware of the case, we've heard of the case, and if we could uh, be impartial. This was an extremely high-profile case. And because of the amount of pretrial media coverage, nearly 500 people were called to the Calgary Court Center for jury selection. Garland's defense team successfully applied to screen possible jurors through Challenge for Cause, where prospective jurors were asked a set of questions designed to expose potential bias due to the publicity of the case. It's important to note that just because you're aware of a specific case doesn't mean that you won't be asked to serve on a jury. I'm a bit of a news junkie. I watch all the news and I knew who you were and I had seen you uh, chasing Garland down the street before uh, before I even knew that I, that I was going to be anywhere near that trial. And so I was very familiar with it, but I was very confident that you know, I could hear the hear the hear uh, uh, what was to be said and uh, and make a of an informed uh, decision. So I, yeah, I didn't think it was going to be a problem for myself. I should add, there are a variety of reasons people are excluded from jury service. That includes some specific professionals like judges and lawyers. 
There are others who can ask to be excused from jury duty. For example, public servants involved in the administration of justice and their spouses, and people with health or domestic obligations. This is up to the judge in each case. There are a lot of people who can't or don't want to serve as jurors. But again, it is your duty unless you can prove it otherwise and be granted an exemption. It was also interesting because um, we had this little lunch break and I went to get a bottle of water and I was talking to another person waiting. And, you know, she was really hoping to not get on the case. And she said, why would you want to be on it? And then for some reason I did. And I remember talking to one of the other jurors too, feeling like this is a privilege to, to get to be a part of our justice system. For me, uh, I know a lot of people did want to get out and some people uh, were able or wanted to. Uh, they had other commitments, family commitments. Uh, for me, I was running my own business. I had people uh, that I could count on. My wife and I worked together. Um, so um, I was fine. With it. I was totally fine with it. And I thought it would be an opportunity to give back to the community. I was born here in Calgary and so true Calgarian and, and to give back to the community. But I had no idea what, uh, what I was really getting into at that point. Then again, they um, they start funneling you into another room, and uh, so I go into uh, into a room which turned out to be the jury room, and there was one guy sitting in there, and then I was in there, and then here comes a third person and a fourth person, and then um, as as it went along, we realized that we were actually the jury, and we didn't even at that point we didn't even really know. In most cases, there are twelve jurors selected. For the Garland case, two extra jurors were chosen to protect against a mistrial in case any jurors needed to drop out. So there were 14 jurors in total. Three women and 11 men were selected. Well, the seriousness of the whole the whole courtroom, um, the the rules. Uh, we were we were informed early and often about what we could do and couldn't do, and no cell phones, and um, who we could talk to and who we couldn't talk to, and that we weren't to watch the news. And you know, so it started early. As a journalist covering this case, I attended the preliminary inquiry. After which, the judge determined there was enough evidence for the case to proceed to trial. There was a publication ban on details of the prelim, so I wasn't able to report on the evidence presented, but it did prepare me for the graphic details that came out during the trial. Jurors, on the other hand, had no idea what they were about to hear. I think every day was a bit of a shock, to be honest. And that was quite something, um, looking him in the face and taking in the whole scene, the whole scene of the courtroom and the family. I think that was a big thing, just looking at all the people who were who were there. That was hard. When the first witness was called, um, that was uh, Jennifer. Uh, that was it for me. I mean, I knew we were, it was going to be intense when, uh, when she described uh, what she went through that first day. The evidence presented during the trial can only be described as horrific. One by one, investigating officers explained what they found at each of the different crime scenes. Sergeant Jody Arns testified about the bloodstains at the Lickness home and explained how evidence showed that all three were likely still alive when they were taken. Senior Constable Ian Oxton, 
fought back tears as he walked court through the forensic evidence found on the Garland property, including DNA of all three victims. Each investigator's testimony added pieces to the puzzle of what happened to Nathan and his grandparents. I guess I've always had a respect for um, the investigators, but now such a next level of respect for all of them, all the different um, positions that were involved in helping to solve this. Just so, so much respect and such a, just a realization of how incredibly hard their job is and this, how engrossed they were in it for such a long period of time. I was looking at it for a couple of weeks. How do you do this every day of your life? I have no idea. What a great job, uh, all the detectives and uh, the, the Calgary police, the RCMP, uh, the Hawks helicopter, the um, all the people that gathered the CCTV video and the amount of evidence that was, uh, you know, 1,400 pieces of evidence, I think it was, that were gathered um, is just unbelievable. I had no idea, um, you know, my... My only uh, thing with police is my speeding tickets, so I, I had no idea that, uh, that, that talented people were out there. There was one officer, Constable Jamie Parhar, whose bubbly personality allowed for some welcomed smiles throughout her testimony. I think it is easy to think of officers as just like 100% um, professional and out there running confidently, knowing exactly what's going on, and yet she was left in like kind of from bad to worse to worse to worse situation where like this young woman like just left in this most unbelievable place and yet as she told about it we all smiled like we I'm sure we all were smiling and I don't think we ever smiled through any of the rest of the trial so it, yeah it's so hard to put into words how much light she did bring into the courtroom and again just how much um I think how personally we we probably all felt very personally involved or like there with her in how she described it, you know. She's young enough to be my daughter, so to think of, you know, my daughter being out there and just how traumatic that must have been, how it all went down in the end was just unbelievable. But how courageous she was and how like what a fantastic job she did. It was just amazing. I just could not imagine putting myself in her shoes. Most evidence presented during the trial could make any person question their faith in humanity. One of the things that stood out was the one, the one man who had spent so many hours um, digging through the ashes. There was distressing evidence that showed the victims were tortured, killed, and dismembered, their bodies destroyed. One day in particular stands out in my mind. There were tears in the courtroom as the jury was asked to handle an evidence bag holding two meat hooks. At the time, the prosecution said it was so they could feel their weight and strength. The trial continued for nearly five weeks. At the end of each day of evidence, Many jurors still had their own responsibilities, like taking care of their families. Thankfully, I was um, just launching a business at the time. So every night after court, I would go to work. So I worked basically every night. So I think that was a good um, distraction for me. 
I think it's important to note at the end of each day, as a journalist, I was able to discuss details of the case with others. But jurors are prevented from doing this by law. That's something I didn't know before being on jury that I thought us as jurors could discuss the case, but we couldn't because otherwise we might persuade each other in a certain direction by just discussing. So all the time that we sat in the jury room or went out for lunch or had breaks, we could not discuss the case. To not be able to come home and talk to your family about it. Um, we, you know, we, we were, we were told not to talk to anybody, not to, and you're right. We, uh, you know, we went uh, to lunch with the other jurors, but we weren't even supposed to speak of it, any of it uh, uh, when we were outside of the jury room. So uh, yeah, it was just a, it was a strange situation. And then we sat in that jury room for many, many hours in between when there was breaks or when the, uh, when they were uh, discussing what they were going to allow and what they weren't. The justice presiding over the case took time on several occasions to encourage jurors and let them know he found certain testimony difficult as well. It's something Jane and Max both appreciated. I thought it was really kind of him to acknowledge that, that this wasn't ordinary for us. We don't sit through trials every day. Yeah, you see crime on TV. That's nothing. That's nothing like sitting in a real courtroom with a real crime in front of you that's not at all the same and I just thought that it was kind and I think that it did give us permission again me permission afterwards to go to a counselor that judge I mean I would love to uh, I'd love to have a beer with that guy it was uh what a super great person and smart and uh he he had control of the courtroom and uh and he was sincere and uh yeah. And he was a human being. I mean, yeah, he, he, you know, he had a couple tears in his eyes. Who wouldn't? Um, if, if that's grounds for appeal, then we got a problem. I should note here that the judge's comments were brought up by Garland's defense in the Alberta Court of Appeal, but the appeal panel stated they found nothing inappropriate about the comments, nor did they find the comments betrayed any bias on the part of the trial judge. Only 12 jurors would decide Garland's fate. But you'll recall that two extra jurors were chosen in case someone had to leave unexpectedly. On the 14th day of the trial, Justice Gates explained that one of the jurors was excused after their son suddenly passed away. That left 13 jurors to hear the case. Then, on the final day, one of those jurors had to be cut. That's because the Criminal Code of Canada does not allow for 13 jurors to deliberate. It states, if there are more than 12 jurors remaining, the judge shall identify the 12 jurors who are to retire to consider the verdict by having the number of each juror written on a card that is of equal size, by causing the cards to be placed together in a box that is to be thoroughly shaken together and by drawing one card if 13 jurors remain or two cards if 14 jurors remain. The judge shall then discharge any juror whose number is drawn. And that's exactly what happened. Right to the bitter end. So he was there for all the evidence, all of the closing arguments, everything, and then released uh, before the deliberation. I saw him afterwards a few times, and um, I 
I really, really felt bad for him. When you ask somebody to sit for five weeks to be so emotionally involved and then to get up and walk them out of the courtroom in front of everybody, like it, and then he, he had no say in, in anything. So I, I think that that really bothered me and, and it really bothered him. Um, after and the judge uh, was uh, came into the to the room and spoke with him about uh, you know this this could be very hard on you uh, so yeah it was a, a weird situation. The twelve who remained were sent to deliberate, and again, jurors cannot discuss what was said during those deliberations. After nearly five weeks, Max said he felt prepared to weigh both the prosecution and defense evidence. I've already heard the case. I've already seen the pictures. I've already listened to all the testimony. I've already got, I've got about, you know, 40 pages of notes. Um, and, you know, I, by that time, I, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's, uh, let's finish this thing off. It took jurors just eight and a half hours of deliberations to reach their unanimous decisions. Douglas Garland was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Nathan O'Brien, and his grandparents, Alvin and Kathy Lickness. There was a feeling, even a sense, not seen, but practically such a strong sense of all this evil being lifted and released. And I hadn't realized how powerful that moment would be. I hadn't realized how much would be released in that moment, how much was hinging on that, how much um, hope would be restored in something in those moments. It was so incredible to be a part of that, that I, I have such a new interest in justice, a new passion, a new, um, can't stop thinking about it, can't stop studying it, can't, you know, there's just something that makes me realize that as humans, justice is so important. And when we got to see the reaction and we, when we got to be a part of that, it was truly a miracle. And all of us did talk about that after, the, how shocking it was, how shocking it felt to just be a part of that moment. And you're thrown into it. You, you get there and, and it's five weeks of intense, uh, of intense trial. And then the verdict comes down. You walk out of the courtroom and it's over. I mean, it's almost the extreme of, a, of an athlete at the end of his career or something. And, and then you wake up tomorrow and, and, you know, then you have to deal with it. And, and there's nobody there, you nobody there you can talk to that, um, that has been through it. Um, I mean, I, I, I would have liked to have seen possibly some, um, uh, they offered us counseling, one-on-one -on -one counseling. And I did uh, go uh, to, uh, to a counselor because I thought it would be I thought it would be wise to do that ahead of time um, at the end of the trial. And, uh, but I, I didn't find that they really understood. Um, I think what, what might, what might really work for a jury is uh, if they had a group session right at the end of the trial, say, say the jury stays an extra day and uh, just have a little group session and a little uh, understanding of what, you know, what's to come in the next month, two months, six months, uh, for, and for different people, it'll be different things, but, uh, I think it would be beneficial because it, it was just, it was intense and then it was over. The people these two jurors think of the most are Alvin, Kathy, and Nathan's family, especially Jennifer O'Brien. As a mom myself, you know, with a child and a 
loving grandma, like imagining, ugh, imagining her walking into the house and the horror, the horror, the unbelief, the terror that she must have gone through as it starts to register. And then, and then the phone calls and the, it's just so tragic. The evidence they saw and heard during those five weeks will no doubt haunt them for the rest of their lives. It was probably, you know, a good six months for me, and I'm sure longer for others, six months of sort of processing, like daily, after after going through that and just realizing, and not just processing like the gruesomeness and the evil, but also um, how our justice system works. Um, all the different things that the investigators do, you know, what's involved in this, what's involved in that, like all of it was just a process to to go through and to understand. And it was, yeah, some of it was very hard and some of it was um, just great to know. Like I said, so, just so amazing, all the different roles and all the different people involved in solving a case, the amount of hours that went into this is just mind boggling. Well, I, what I find is there are so many triggers. So every time I drive down Glenmore Trail or I drive past the Balzac, Balzac Way scale or I see a green Ford half ton or all oh, my locks on my house are Schlag 365s or, you know, it's just on and on. I was um, <clears throat> last year at the uh, Springbank Arena and uh, there was a picture of Nathan in the arena. Um, so, it, yeah, it's... Uh, there's a lot of triggers, I can tell you that for sure. I asked them how they deal with the trauma that's been passed on to them. You know, I, I just keep coming back to the family and I keep pushing aside um, anything that, you know, woe is me because it, it just is so devastating for the family that, uh, you know, my little bit of a contribution or my little bit of pain or uh, sadness, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say I haven't shed a few tears uh, just randomly uh, when when you get a few triggers like that day in the uh, in the Springbank Arena. Um, but uh, you just deal with it. Um, like we already said, you compartmentalize it and, and you push it aside and you say, I couldn't, there's nothing I could have done about it. I mean, if I, if I could have been there, that day, I, I would have uh, I would have been there, um, but there's nothing we can do at this point. And unfortunately, this kind of thing, um, maybe not to this degree, but this kind of thing keeps happening over and over again. And uh, and it's a sad state. Uh, why why it happens in our society, I don't know. This is this is what I take away from the case that there's some pretty amazing people out there, you know, who work tirelessly with dogs, um, like the how the dogs contributed too, which is phenomenal and how they contribute by spending their life training these dogs, like every piece of this, there's so much that we can say about, okay, there's evil, but guess what? Justice prevails. And there's a lot of people who spend their whole life to make sure that it does. And they won. Over the years, there have been calls for greater support for jurors in Canada, and a special steering committee has looked into some of the key issues and found there is room for improvement by provincial, territorial, and federal governments. 
I've spoken with several former jurors from other cases who have been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder from the graphic details they've been exposed to. So I wanted to know what feedback Max and Jane had, what they think could help make this civic duty a better experience. I wish that at the end, um, they could have brought somebody in. Uh, you know, if we would have spent one more day there, uh, and they could have brought somebody in that could have walked us through uh, the emotions that we're going to have. I mean, most of us had never been through um, any real trauma in our life. Um, you know, have lived a pretty vanilla life. And, uh, and so it, w- it would have been beneficial had, I think, if we would have had a group session. So that would have been good. I don't know a lot about the American system, but I do know that it's completely different in that uh, as soon as they're done, you know, they're interviewing jurors and their names and out there and public. And, and I'm not so sure that that's not a bad way to go uh, because then it gives the jurors a chance to, to say what they were thinking. I mean, we're, we're not even allowed to, to discuss the deliberation Uh, or anybody's opinion in the room or how it came down or anything like that. We're not allowed to discuss it with anyone, even our family. And uh, and yet in the States, uh, you know, it's all public. They get interviewed, they go on television shows and for the big cases. And I'm not so sure that I, I don't like that better. I think it would be more closure. In fact, speaking with you right now is closure for me. Uh, just, you know, this, this is a great conversation for me. I, I really appreciate it. I can relate to Jane and Max. They heard and saw the same horrific things I saw in covering this case. And as I mentioned before, this is one of the most disturbing cases I've ever covered and shared on Crime Beat. Thank you for joining me this week, and a special thanks to Max and Jane for sharing their experiences with me. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the acting VP of National and Network News for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and you can join me on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.